Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Proverbs chapter 3. We're going to spend our time uh, in the story of David again, because that story is a fantastic story. Okay. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, these are the words of God. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Uh, Daniel J. Estes writes concerning the Proverbs this. He says, instead of treating Proverbs as a treatise that has clearly definable development across the whole book, a different approach is to be used. After the individual proverb is exegeted, is unpacked or understood, its meaning is to be synthesized with that of similar sayings that speak to the same subject. Because proverbs are inherently limited, no single maxim or proverb presents the entire picture. The portrait emerges only when all of the relevant sayings on the topic are considered together. Simply put, understanding a proverb or anything else in God's word requires having a bigger picture. This is important for truth. Uh, This is what uh, I often call the Psalm 119, 160 principle. The sum of your word is truth, David says, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. The sum, church, the sum of God's word is where we find truth. Now, are the parts true? Yes, absolutely. Remember the second half of that verse. Every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Sure, the the parts are true, but only as they are understood within the context of the whole. This is tremendously important when it comes to discerning doctrinal truths. The church does this wrong a lot. Uh, We tend to... tend to point the finger at everybody for uh, cherry-picking verses, and yet we have entire denominations that have started because they cherry-picked a verse, right? And so it becomes a real big challenge. So we need uh, this uh, holistic approach in discerning doctrinal truths, and for our purpose in this series on Proverbs, we need it clearly for proverbial wisdom. We need to understand it right. Let me give you an example, and then what we'll do is we'll jump uh, into the story. We'll extend and expand on the story that we had last week. Uh, Proverbs 26, verse 4. It'll be on the screen for you. 26, 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Now, if we take this verse without uh, considering any other proverb, we might conclude that it's wise to completely ignore a fool, right? This is don't talk to him, right? This is really important. To write them off would be the natural way of reading this. Uh, After all, none of us wants to be a fool, and look at what it said again. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you're going to be like him. But the question that we have to ask is, is that what the rest of Scripture says? Do we abandon fools according to the Scripture? Uh, Is this even what the immediate passage is saying? 
The answer, of course, is no, and I'm grateful for that because I would have been left in the dust a long time ago, right? If not for correcting fools, what's the point of Matthew 18 in church discipline? If not for correcting a fool, what's the point of Galatians 6, even if we're supposed to do this correction with a spirit of gentleness? Uh, What about Jesus' instruction to remove the log from our own eye so that we can see clearly when removing the twig from another person's eye? And I hope you understand that means we have a responsibility to do it. The point I'm making is that in, uh, in the end of all of this, Uh, correction is the aim, and what we're correcting is foolishness that's bound up or resides inside of the hearts of men and women. Uh, This foolishness that resides in us is also known as sin, okay? Uh, Let's consider another proverb about child-rearing. I believe that this will be helpful, so if you're a parent, go ahead and turn your volume up because you need to hear this. Proverbs 22.15 says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Can I get an Amen. I have four daughters. Yep, okay. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it from him. The rod of discipline. Now, I've talked on this a long time uh, on many occasions about the fact that it's called the rod of discipline. What we're doing is, is disciplining our children. Uh, some people believe that you, can, that you should swatch your children. Some people don't. I'm not terribly concerned where you land on this, but what I am concerned about is that if you don't discipline your children, they will be heathens. <laughs> Can I get another amen from that? Anyway, so, so the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. If we misread Proverbs 26.4, that we are not to deal with a don't answer a fool, then Proverbs 22.15 is at best irrelevant. Don't correct a fool. And especially if they're your children, because it's bound there, right? This leads to neglect. Why? Because you're not ever disciplining your children. At the worst, though, it's a blatant contradiction. Are there contradictions in the Scripture? The answer is no, in case you were wondering. The truth is that neither of these approaches is true. What, sh- what should we do with this uh, point? In, in other words, what should we do then if we're at an impasse here? Well, the greatest hermeneutical principle ever. Keep reading. It's really important. We have to examine the whole of God's word if we're to rightly divide it. So in this instance, we don't have to look any further than the very next verse in Proverbs. Proverbs 26.5 goes on to say, answer a fool. Okay, don't answer a fool. Now it says, answer a fool, as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. You see the problem with cherry picking, right? If you stop at verse 4, you're just not going to do anything. But you read on to 5, and you realize that there's a fuller picture. Okay, so what are we actually to do with a fool? Well, we're not to answer them according to their folly, but we are to answer them. You need to answer a fool, and especially if it resides in your children, and it does. With respect to the first verse, we're not to lower ourselves to the fool's level. That's what you're not supposed to do. And per the second verse, we are to answer according to what the folly deserves. Here's here's how I want you to remember it. We're to be a good Samaritan helping our brother out of the pit they found themselves in. We're just not supposed to jump in with them. Right In this, the punishment in our correction of people, punishment should fit the crime, as we like to say. And this is really big, church, because we've failed this miserably. Not only should we correct a fool, but we are to do it in a situation-specific manner. What's that mean? One size doesn't fit all when it comes to correction. 
One size doesn't fit all. You can't just go parading everybody in front of the church. Maybe there's a step in that. Step three in church discipline according to Matthew 18. But it's really important that you don't go uh, assuming that you can do this correction with this person the same way you can do it with another person. I I learned this a while ago with my daughters because when I'm talking to my daughters, it is a mixed bag. Uh, There are some of my daughters that are, um, well, let's just say more stubborn than the others, okay? And so their correction requires physical correction. I have no problem with swatting my children, uh, but it, uh, some of them need it, right? That's just the way it is. Some of them, I can look them straight in the eye and say, I'm disappointed in you. And right there, no guilt trip, none of that. Please, church, please, parents, if you were trained in guilt tripping, knock it off. You will scar your children for life. And what happens is that they develop this, they employ this, and then they start manipulating every relationship they have with that kind of absurdity. So knock off the guilt trips, but get on to proper discipline. I can look at Kate, for example, and I can say, baby girl, why did you do that? You know that that breaks my heart. Boom, she's good. I'm sorry, daddy. I won't do it again. It's amazing how that works. So the, the, the correction has to be a, a situation-specific correction. One size, again, doesn't fit all. There's also a very clear purpose for this correction. Proverbs 23, 9 says, Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. So is that an absolute, just don't even talk in the presence of fools? We know from the other verses it's not. Why? Because you have to take the whole of God's word to understand its truth. You go cherry picking and you're going to have a problem. So don't speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. The reason that we're not to sink to the level of a fool is because, number one, uh, we'll become just like them, the blind leading the blind. Amen? Number two, maybe more importantly than this, is the fact that they won't listen anyway. So don't slip to their level because they're not going to listen to you. This, again, plays out in parenting all the time. Parents seem to want to get down on the same level as their children. But what happens is that they start acting like children themselves. You know where you can see this best? Walmart. Anyway, but so you can see this. But the While this is going on, while this kind of submitting to the child instead of the child submitting to you, the parents are actually losing any say in their child's life. And whether they recognize it or not, it's going to have long-term ramifications. At some point, your children are just going to look at you and say, I don't have to listen to you. And part of the reason for that, if you're not careful, was because you didn't set it as a standard that they ought to listen to you. This is hard. I'm not meaning to condemn anybody. I'm simply telling you that, that this, is, this is the way it should be and that it comes with a great deal of work. So again, we are supposed to answer a fool, but we must do it appropriately. The ultimate goal of this is related to the theme today, and that is to drive out pride. Uh, we answer a fool according to their folly so they won't be wise in their own eyes. Why should we care about people being wise in their own eyes? Why should we care about people being proud? Because God rejects the proud, church. And we ought to be a people who care for their salvation, for their restoration, for their life. Amen?
So we are to answer the fool according to their folly so that they won't be wise in their own eyes. This kind of pride is the most common attribute for a fool, which is why Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7 warns us as it does. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Don't be wise in your own eyes. A brief side note here. Uh, when Jesus tells us in the New Testament, uh, not to call a brother a fool. How many of you know this? Don't call a brother a fool. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, if you want to look it up. But he is not implying that there are no foolish people in the world. <laughs> there are a lot of foolish people in the world. I are one, right? Okay, so, so he's not implying that there aren't any foolish people. He's teaching in a roundabout sort of way, which is, of course, common to Jesus, that the aim of any Christian is restoration and not condemnation. Don't call your brother a fool. You ought to be careful. You're in danger of hellfire. This is what our Heavenly Father has done for us. He's restored us. He's forgiven us. And as forgiven people, what are we to be? A forgiving people. A forgiving people. How, how absurd are we supposed to be at our forgiveness? If a brother sins against us seven times in a day and asks for forgiveness, you, re, you forgive him seven times a day. Most of us can't even get that one piece of forgiveness out of our minds because it's stuck there. It's lodged there. We're holding on to something because that person needs to pay for the way they hurt us. And yet, the scripture tells us if your brother comes to you seven times in a day, you forgive him. Swallowing hard, because that's a very challenging thing. So as we get started, uh, remember these two things. Number one, we need the whole of God's word, or we're going to come up with some rather foolish ideas ourselves. And number two, a fool requires a specific answer, one that is according to their particular folly. Today, we're going to follow the folly of both David and Absalom. That's one of David's sons. And we're going to see through certain circumstances how both manifested pride. They're very different, but they both manifest pride. There's a difference uh, for David ultimately in this, that David uh, eventually humbles himself and comes uh, to his senses, comes to the Lord. Again, this provides us with a fun teaching moment, and, and you need to hear this when you hear about pride and humility, when we start having conversations about sin versus committing sin versus being a sinner. Um, humble people can and do make foolish choices. Did you know that? Wives, look at your husbands and say, I know that. <laughs> okay, so, right, so humble people can and do make foolish choices. The reason they're not characterized as fools, at least not in a permanent sense, is that they humble themselves when their foolishness is exposed, and sometimes even before their foolishness is exposed. Uh, they refuse to walk in a state of habitual foolishness. Okay? Just a constant state of, uh, of doing this. This is the exact same principle that covers committing a sin versus being a sinner. The church really struggles with this, and I, I have an uphill battle because I'm dealing with hundreds of years of teaching to the contrary of this. But there is a difference between calling yourself a sinner... Because what often follows that is I'm a sinner, a wretched piece of nothing, right? It's always, this, it's always this false humility. It's always false humility, right? Sure, you sin and fall short of the glory of God. But the God who redeemed you called you a friend. The God who redeemed you called you his child. The God who redeemed you says that you are set in a different place. 
So what God has called clean, I would recommend you not call unclean. No matter what you think and no matter what some dead preacher told you a long time ago. The problem that we have is that we can't seem to discern the difference between sinning and being a sinner, right? We all sin, don't we? We all fall short of the glory of God, present tense. (laughs) We all fall short of the glory of God. Uh, But the problem is, the problem is, there's a difference between that and somebody who is non-repentant or unrepentant. Right? The true Christian is marked by a constant state of turning. A constant state of saying, I'm sorry, Lord. I continue to fall short of your glory. But it isn't, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm groveling at your feet. Please save me again. You do realize when the blood of Jesus was spilt and you accepted, that is done. You don't have to sacrifice him again and again and again. Not even in your mind. It's an easy principle to hear, and it's a very complicated idea to live out. But we are forgiven. We are free. We once were lost, and now we're found. We once were dead, and now we're alive. And there's a resurrection coming, and I'm happy for that. My joints hurt. But I'm I'm grateful for this ultimate time. But I want you to understand what marks a Christian is a constant turning. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, a Christian is not a man who never goes wrong. How do we know that C.S. Lewis is right here? Because the scripture itself said, if you sin, confess your sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. He didn't say, confess your sin, you worthless, wretched piece of nothing. (laughs) Right? I just don't, I know what people are trying to do. They're trying to humble people, but it turns out to be false humility. Here's what Lewis goes on to say. But a man who is enabled to repent, that's what God does. He gives us that right. He has given us that privilege. And that man picks himself up, and Lewis doesn't mean by your bootstraps, with the power of the Holy Spirit, and begins over again after each stumble. Because the Christ life is inside you, repairing him at all times, enabling him to repeat if in some degree, the kind of voluntary death in ourselves, we die daily, the voluntary death which Christ himself carried out on the cross. See, like the sinner, I hope we'll never forget that there is hope for the fool. There is hope for the fool. There is hope for the sinner. We are products of that hope, mind you. We are saved and we are set free because there was hope for a fool and a sinner right? Proverbs 26, 12 says this, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Although it's a small measure, (laughs) right? There is hope here nonetheless. It's not so for the proud person. We've got to make sure we understand that. Let's continue to last week's story picking up in 2 Samuel 13. Uh, There are two tragic characters that we have to begin with. The first is Tamar and the second is Amnon. What a brutal story this is. The storyline, if you take the time to read it, seems to parallel that of David and Bathsheba. However, Amnon, which was David's firstborn son, doesn't seem to have learned uh, any lessons, honestly, from his father. And even if he did, I guess he learned the wrong lessons. Uh, I, I can... I can understand that as a dad. Anyway, as the story goes, Amnon, through a series of deceptions, violates Tamar. I'm trying to keep this PG, guys. But um, 
Tamar is actually his half-sister, so it's a real weird Kentucky story. Anyway, so as it turned out, Amnon ended up hating Tamar after he took advantage of her, uh, right? And, and then he leaves her destitute, so he, he ends up hating her. According to Proverbs 26, 28, uh, a lying tongue hates those that they crush. A lying tongue hates those that they crush, which actually proves that Amnon never loved Tamar. He hated her. This foolish act, though, incurs the wrath of Tamar's brother. Okay, so it's a family affair here, right? Absalom, who is also David's son by another wife. Meanwhile, David seems to stand by and he does absolutely nothing about the rape of his daughter. I'll show the pride of inaction in just a second. Absalom takes matters into his own hands, which begins his journey of pride. So far, it seems to be like father like son, right? This is, uh, this is depressing. Absalom doesn't go to God uh, when he needs help, just as David didn't ask God for help with Bathsheba in this whole incident. Nathan the prophet tells David, you remember this story, I, I shared it last week. Nathan tells David, God gave you everything. Why wouldn't you just go and ask him? He would have given you more. That's not to imply that he would have necessarily given uh, David Bathsheba. The point is still the same. Why don't you trust God for the things that you want and the things that you need in life? Instead, uh, Absalom makes an elaborate plan to murder his brother. What a fun story, right? Uh, the pl- like, we have sibling rivalry in our house, but nobody's, at least as far as I know, plotting the murder of anyone, okay? So the plan seems obvious, but David doesn't take action. He doesn't even acknowledge that there's an issue. David seems silent in this part of the story. He seems uninterested in putting the tragedy to rights, which is his job not only as a dad, but as king. And this sets Absalom against his father. Absalom now is uh, hating David, and I believe as we look at all the story, this is, this is where the plan to take David down seems to be born in Absalom's mind. So you remember Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. I read it at the outset of the message. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. What we learn here is that taking matters into our own hands is the evidence of foolish pride. Now this is going to get sticky because it's always foolish pride, no matter what the story, no matter what the circumstances. If you're taking matters in your life into your own hands, it's time to repent. It's time to repent. Why? It is foolish pride. David did this with the whole Bathsheba incident, and Absalom is now doing it with not trusting in the vengeance of the Lord. And guess what? I think we're all guilty of this. Here's a question for you, though. Have you walked in the pride of believing that your ways were higher than God's ways at any point this week? Listen, you're never going to say, yeah, I woke up on a Wednesday and I thought, my ways are higher than God's ways. (laughs) I'm awesome. You're never going to say that. What's going to happen is you're going to know what God says and you're going to do it your way. Guess what you just did? You just voted your way as higher than God's ways. Right? This, is, this is insolent pride. This is foolish pride. And sadly, it is more common than we'd like to admit. With respect to David, his pride in this situation was actually twofold. David's pride. We see Absalom's pride. He's just an idiot, right? How many of you know that when our sins are confronted and when we're disciplined, it's not uncommon for us to isolate from others and to ignore our responsibilities, 
Why? You've just been called out on the carpet, right? You've just been, the finger's been pointed at you. David, thou art the man. So what does David do inside of this? Well, he retreats. He doesn't do his job. He abdicates his responsibility. Uh, Sadly, church, this is just pride manifesting itself in a covert way. Who are you pitying when you've been corrected and when you have, have shown yourself to be wrong? Who are you pitying in those moments? Self, right? What is that? Pride. This is the problem. This is a big problem for most of us. C.S. Lewis famously said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. I go back to the point I just made about talking about you being a horrible, wretched piece of nothing but worm food, right? Good on you, but all you're doing is thinking less of yourself, not thinking thinking of yourself less. You're just playing a false humility game, which is pride yet again, okay? So C.S. Lewis, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. In the case of David's self-pity, he was thinking less of himself, a thing we call false humility. David was still a man after God's heart. What made David a man after God's heart is not a list of amazing attributes he had because he was a better man than all the rest. It was because he was a repentant man. He was humble. He came back to the Lord. He believed God would take care of him. You want to talk about a guy who understood that God's ways were higher than his, that he didn't trust in his own ways. David goes out on a battlefield as a young boy against a nine-foot-tall giant Not because David thinks he's all that in a bag of chips. He goes out there, not in the name of the Lord, not in the name of a sword and a spear, but in the name of the Lord. What is he doing? Trusting God. Trusting God in everything. That's why David is a man after God's heart. But at this point, he's practicing false humility. He doesn't trust God for his desires. Consequently, he loses a son, and he eventually loses a kingdom, at least temporarily. A man even loses his life because of David's sin. Now David doesn't even see himself as a good king. And then David's refusal to take action with Amnon is the outplay of thinking less of oneself uh, and this kind of pride. Now more people are getting hurt in light of David's uh, abdicating his responsibility. Interestingly enough, David is pleased with Absalom, who eventually enacts justice. Absalom kills Amnon, and David seems to enjoy the, the reality of it. But David's inaction reaches even further. Though this, through the orde- the, this ordeal, David doesn't remove Jonadab. There's a man that you, you should read up on, Jonadab, from the place of advisor in the court. So not only does he not take and enact justice because of the violation against his own Uh, his own daughter, he also doesn't remove the guy, Jonadab, who is the one who advised Amnon on how to take advantage of the girl. Like this guy is just sitting back. David is sitting back and he's twiddling his thumbs. Men, I'm going to talk to you for a second. There are many of you doing this exact same thing. When it comes to leading your family, you're not doing it. You're twiddling your thumbs. And guess what happens? Everybody else in your life gets hurt all because you're wallowing in self-pity, which is pride, which is you're a fool. Okay? We need to correct this. We need to turn from this kind of idea. So we need to, we need to not be uh, lazy in our responsibilities. Proverbs 27.6 says, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. 
Man, the Proverbs are beautiful. Listen to what happens here. David actually fails to be a friend to his own son. How? Because of his inaction. He fails to do his job, and therefore, he fails to be a friend to his son. Just like David, we can be enemies of those around us in what we don't do. You can make an enemy by what you don't do. It seems as though Absalom wanted his father to provide an open rebuke, but when David didn't, uh, when David didn't, Absalom loses a friend. David becomes an enemy then of Absalom because that's the way it is. There's no middle here, right? So uh, it's at this point that Absalom commits his course and carries out his brother's murder. So I'm just kind of backtracking a little bit. Uh, David does nothing to mourn, uh, nothing but mourn, while Absalom then flees to his grandfather, which happens to be the king of Jeshur. So connecting all these dots is a fascinating thing if you ever want to do that. Absalom stays in Jeshur until a man named Joab works to bring him home. Now we should remember this name Joab or this person Joab because he was the man that David trusted to carry out Uriah's murder or at least to overlook it. So why do we now see Joab putting up with Absalom, even to the point of Absalom burning down his field, which is a really weird part of the story? It seems as though Joab's own story of pride enters into the narrative here, okay? I don't have time to talk about Joab's pride, but it's, it's a brutal thing. If we rewind in David's story, we can see why his pride occurs. I just can't go into detail. It wasn't only Absalom, Amnon, and Tamar that were affected by David's actions. Joab was also affected. And there seems to be a clear rift that that occurs between David and his army commander. After Uriah's death, Joab becomes arrogant. He even begins to taunt David. Pride often creates collateral damage, church. Pride often creates collateral damage. But listen to me. It always comes with blowback. It often creates collateral damage. But pride always comes with blowback because you will be disciplined at some point. And the further you go down that rabbit hole, the darker or the deeper that discipline is, and it becomes challenging. God is willing to do a great many things, church, to bring us back from the precipice of destruction. And that is where pride leads us. Together, Joab and Absalom slowly turn the kingdom against David. And this continues for decades until in a final act of passive parenting, which is what David is guilty of in his pride, David grants Absalom's request to travel to Hebron. Now here's a fun connection of the story. This is the very place that David himself was declared king. I do not know for sure uh, if it's David's apathy, but it seems that all of this renders David blind. He has missed every red flag possible. And the process of uh, Absalom taking and Joab taking the hearts of the people away from David occurs over 40 years. How blind do you have to be better question. How much do you just not want to see? Because David just chooses to hunker down and act like it's not his problem, but it is clearly his problem. Absalom had spent his time patiently positioning himself as a better judge than his father. Make sure you look at proud people. Make sure you look at foolish people, because here's what you'll find about proud and foolish people. They are cunning Just like the devil who prowls looking for whom he may devour, 
fools aren't always stupid, <laughs> right? Fools are not always stupid. Absalom is patiently positioning himself. Absalom sits out at the, at the temple gate and he goes, if I could have judged your case, I would have judged it right for you. And over 40 years, he wins everybody's hearts to him. Absalom's pride here is the exact same as it was before. He didn't trust God or his plan. I'm not sure Absalom believed God or in God anyway, right? He touted himself as a better judge than David. He even takes matters of justice into his own hands by killing his brother. These are all clear aspects of pride. A few points as we wrap this up. A few points about proud people. Number one, they don't always fall quickly. I hate this part of the story. Again, Absalom spends 40 years winning the hearts of the people away from David. At one point, David is even run from his throne. Can you imagine living in that world? Well, you're still living in that world. Psalm chapter 37, 7 says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who uh, prospers in his way because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. That's a parallel for the two people, right? A prosperous person in their way as well as a wicked schemer. These are the people that David says in this psalm, don't fret. Instead, what should you do? Be patient. Be patient. Show of hands, how many of you think that's easy? It's the only time I don't want anybody's hand going up. Because that person's clearly the liar. Okay, Psalm 73.3, this is Asaph. He felt the same way too about the wicked prospering. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here's, here's what I love about uh, Asaph. I love this about David too. And I hope this is true of all of us. Asaph doesn't, doesn't strike that from the record of his life of the things that he thinks of, Asaph clearly says, I was envious of the arrogant. There are many days when I find myself in that place where I look at people who absolutely reject God and yet everything seems to keep going well. You guys all know somebody like this. I, I used to work at a church uh, before we planted our church, uh, Pierce Point, and I used to work at this church and one of my coworkers, I won't mention the person, one of my coworkers came to me one day and she was just in tears. And she said, I really just grow tired of doing good all the time because people who don't do it keep moving ahead. And I said, you know, there's a, there's a psalm that talks about this and I shared that psalm with her. And I also shared the fact that the scripture says, don't grow weary in doing good. What does that imply? We grow weary in doing good. Here's what a true Christian does. A true Christian repents. A true Christian also admits that they're struggling at times. A true Christian looks at it and says, Lord, I'm struggling. I don't know how to overcome this. I'm fighting a fight here. I want something I can't have. I, this, I, that. Whatever it is. David could have done that. Nathan the prophet wanted David to do that. God wanted David to do that. God wants us to do that. He wants us to be repented people, but he also wants us to speak candidly with him and say, Lord, I'm, I'm overcome. This is really hard for me. I don't know what's going on. But what often happens, church, is we play church. We act like we're better Christians than we are, 
Probably because we were taught if we admit any kind of weakness in ourselves, we are absolutely out of the will of God or lightning bolts are coming for us or some nonsense like this. This is not what the Bible says. The Bible communicates faithful people who are after God's heart as a people who repent and as a people who are honest with God and with themselves. Okay? So we need to do this. Sometimes the prosperous, sometimes the proud, sometimes the fool uh, continues to thrive or continues to prosper is what I meant. Proverbs 14.11 reassures us, though, the house of the wicked will be destroyed. It is coming. It will be destroyed. But the tent of the upright will flourish. Proverbs 16.19 says, It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Sometimes the proud are out sharing the spoil, but it will not last forever, church. It won't last forever. Absalom's pride ended tragically. The very man that helped Absalom in his attempted takeover, Joab, is the very man who killed him. What does that prove? Galatians 5.15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care. You are not consumed by one another. That's what happens in disunity. Jesus told us in Matthew 12.25, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Don't worry. Don't worry. But when you do worry, run to the Lord. Run to the Lord, share it with your brother, share it with your sister in Christ. Tell them that life is hard right now. It's okay. Listen, for you to live life pretending as though this world does not weigh on you or that sin is not a challenge to overcome, for you to pretend that is for you to think that you have the power of God. And apart from the Holy Spirit, you ain't got the power of nothing. And even in the power of the Holy Spirit, what are you called to do? Submit, which means it's still there. It's still a will, and it's still hard to do this. Pride refuses to have competition, right? This is why we struggle with this. Pride refuses to have competition. Remember what I shared last week. C.S. Lewis said, we say that people are proud for being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others, If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Don't be wise in your own eyes. You're a fool. You're proud. This is a problem. The second characteristic of proud people is that they don't always boast or brag. I know that that is a common characteristic of a proud person or of a fool, but they don't always boast and brag. Often, they are, they are those who simply abdicate their responsibilities. And if they're bragging about anything, it's that false humility bragging, which is pride again. This is for a myriad of reasons, though. If, like David, we are shrinking from our responsibilities because, well, there's not enough me time in it, or because we think that people should just take care of themselves and that all of this thing called life is just too much work, and we just lay down our job as moms and dads, as brothers and sisters in Christ who are called to sharpen one another, if we lay that down, the problem is we are again walking in foolish pride. Do you know that we're called to be a royal priesthood? A royal priesthood. Jesus is the high priest, and we, all of us, not the Pope, not Nathan, 
We are a royal priesthood. And you know what a royal priesthood does? A royal priesthood humbles themselves. A royal priesthood serves the Lord. A royal priesthood knows that his ways are higher than our ways. A royal priesthood admits when they're wrong, confesses their sins, and turns around, right? A royal priesthood is subject to their king. A royal priesthood doesn't walk in foolish pride. So in conclusion, do you remember where we started? Remember this, remember this proverb. You should memorize this with your family. I, I just highly encourage it. For my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Why did I repeat that? For this question, who is speaking here? Solomon, right? Solomon. These are the words of David's son. This is the progeny of David and Bathsheba. The very reason for the chaos that we're talking about, right? This is one of the most amazing parts of the story for redemption. This is just food for thought. Solomon grew up watching this dysfunction. We tend to read the Bible and put everybody in these different folders and we don't think that they intermingle. But, but Solomon is watching this dysfunction play out. And in light of that, in light of the wisdom that he cries out to God for, Solomon says, in all your ways acknowledge him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. I've seen it not work. Don't do it. You know, the Bible says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. I love contemplating these things because it doesn't seem, I don't hear it happening a lot, okay? God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And most people look at the story of their life, they look, at the, they, they look at the dysfunction of their family, they look at the divorce that their parents went through, they look at the abandonment of their parents or something like this, and they say, what am I supposed to do with this? And my response is, don't worry, God will work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You know what he did for Solomon? He worked all that dysfunction to build in him wisdom and ideas and understanding of what he should do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't do what your dad did. Don't do what your dad did. Lean not onto your own understanding. In all your ways, you should acknowledge the Lord. Guess what? God will make your path straight. How does Solomon know it? Because God did it for David. He, he crafted David's life and steered this colossal train wreck back in to the most glorious kingship that we know, and we still talk about it. King David, King David, King David. Solomon knows this. Don't worry about your past. Don't worry about the makeup of your life. Don't worry about those things. What you should do is trust the Lord, because when you do, when you belong to him, he works all things together for your good. You know what that is if you'll do that? If you'll trust him, it's called humility. It's refusing pride. This is the very thing that God gives grace to. He welcomes you. He welcomes you because he loves you. Church, we, we have a lot to learn about pride and humility. 
and two messages in a series on Proverbs is obviously never going to plumb the depths of this issue. But I hope you guys will dig into it more yourselves. And I hope you'll also do something for me. I hope you'll take the Proverbs. I hope you'll weigh these maxims, these sayings across all of those that are like them, okay? Everything in the Bible that talks about wise and fool or proud and humble, weigh them together. And then what I encourage you to do is look for how they play out in the stories of the Bible. Because when you see how they play out in the stories of the Bible, you begin to truly understand the Proverbs. You, you, tend, you begin to truly understand what they're all about. Amen. Amen.